This is Peace Talks Radio, the series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls today with correspondent Sarah Holtz. And today, a three-part program about nonviolence and solidarity across international borders. How would the world transform if peace was a universal right? On this episode, Sarah Holtz will be exploring that question with an advocate, an academic, and an activist. First up, we meet Fred Arment, the founding director of International Cities of Peace. Since 2009, ICP, as it's known, has been building a network of communities, great and small, that prioritize peaceful coexistence. Fred's also been consulting with the United Nations Economic and Social Council for NGOs for some time. To begin their conversation, Sarah Holtz asked Fred about the values that the cities of peace all share. There's many ways to peace, and we define peace as safety, prosperity, and quality of life for all in the community. And we haven't had any pushback on that definition of peace. There's always, you know, what do you mean by peace? Uh, well, we, we have a good definition. It means that everybody in the community is safe, they can feed their families, and they have a quality of life, they can achieve their purpose. So what more? Interesting. And I wonder if you could define for us, what is a city of peace? Well, it's uh, a self-established um, city of peace. We don't, we don't establish cities of peace around the world. We have 312, uh, 313 as of this week. Um, and people that are peacemakers in the community uh, want to establish their community as valuing peace. So there's a process and, um, you know, it can be done by a proclamation, a mayor's signing a resolution, or mainly it's, it's uh, community groups that are working for peace in their areas and they want to establish it um, in perpetuity as a city dedicated to a culture of peace. So we highlight their uh, work and we also highlight the city itself because every city essentially has uh, a peace legacy. All right. And where is your newest city of peace? It's actually um, in Uvira, um, which is in the Kiva uh, uh, state uh, of Democratic Republic of Congo. So they have uh, an organization there that is kind of fledgling. And what we do is we give them kind of a global platform. So it uh, gives them more authority within the community. Uh, in cities across the world, um, the needs of the city are only known by the people inside the community. So what they do is very important. When NGOs come in and tell people how to find peace, it's not quite as important as the people deciding that they're going to address the community needs with uh, new initiatives. There are, I believe, 35 different cities of peace in the United States. Um, in Buenos Aires, uh, Argentina, and surrounding communities, there's 21 cities of peace in Argentina. So each culture is different. Each city is different. Yeah, that makes sense. And it sounds like for the most part, these cities are self-initiated. Yes, there's an individual who contacted us. Um, we have never reached out to any any place around the world. It's all come to us organically. Uh, so the the leader of this um, uh, movement is trained mediator. Um, and uh, they've been working kind of uh, sporadically uh, for peace in the area. And it's a very difficult area. 15 million people were killed in the war uh, 
in the Democratic Republic of Congo. So um, it seems that people in such dire conditions yearn for peace more than cities and communities that already have a level of peace. Um, so we have a lot of people. We, we had two from uh, Iran uh, in February. We had two more in China in February also. So around the world, um, there are many communities that are dealing with um, the modern world and, and uh, many people within these countries um, want to establish the idea of, um, of peace as the culture of their, of their new communities. So. Very cool. And something stuck out to me in your mission statement, which is that you contend that peace is a right. And I wonder if you could explain a little bit about what that means. Well, over the uh, centuries and millennium, um, you know, as we've evolved as a, as a species, we have kind of raised the bar in terms of uh, what it means uh, to be humane and have a sense of uh, justice. And, and um, so the idea of a culture of peace, the idea of peace uh, ha has been uh, evolving along with us. And um, the right to peace is, uh, you know, a philosophical term uh, the United Nations has elevated our ideas of what a right is. So now you have a right to have your culture. You have a right to, um, um, you know, be safe and be prosperous no matter who you are. So our, our idea of, of the right to peace is, is no longer um, uh, a hope. We are establishing peace all over the world. And it's just... Uh, you know, people have a tendency to watch the news and think everything is, is going, uh, going south. But I tell you, um, we have seen a remarkable difference uh, just over the last few years of people's consciousness arriving at the conclusion that, that peace is what's known as a you know, German term, the zeitgeist of our time. It is, it is what it's about. And I know that you do a lot of work with the United Nations, and I wonder if you could describe what your role is as a consultant with the UN. You know, the Sustainable Development Goals, um, you're familiar with uh, 17 different um, goals, water, air, uh, things like that. So making people aware that there's these initiatives um, is one of the things that all of our cities of peace are doing. Um, in the Dayton area, we we celebrate International Day of Peace and there's celebrations all around the world. And what we've done is, is we, have, we have identified um, 150 organizations that mount uh, Peace Day events each year, 50 events. And, but the 50 events are, are totally different and they are specifically uh, geared toward uh, climate or they're specifically geared geared toward education, or all of these different development goals. So we identified the, the sustainable development goals for each of those um, celebrations of Peace Day. So making people aware uh, that they are working in different areas. There's so many different ways to work for peace. It's not just, you know, something that happened in the 60s where people went out and, and, and changed the world in that way. We've evolved as, as, uh, as peace organizations to the point now where we're in the community. We're, you know, 
sustainable agriculture, all of these different things. So the sustainable development goals, um, we also, we have two reps, actually three reps at the United Nations, and they go to the workshops and they go to the General Assembly and participate in all of the ideas, especially UNESCO and, and some of the other more um, human-focused uh, ideas. We're speaking to Fred Arment of International Cities of Peace, and I wonder if you could share a few of the success stories from the cities that you've worked with. Absolutely. Um, there's actually 300 different success stories. I, I, you know, you wouldn't believe the inbox that I have every day. It, it just the organizational qualities that are being created within these communities, at-risk communities. For instance, uh, you know, Palestine's been in the news. The Gaza Strip has been in the news. You wouldn't think there was a city of peace there, but there is a city of peace there in Gaza. And uh, we worked uh, for almost two years with with a, a group in Gaza to create a new organization um, that is based in nonviolence within Palestine. And so, you know, it's a, it, the courage that, that people have to step forward for peace in these areas. Um, you know, it's, it's very heartening to see that, you know, places in Afghanistan, there's two young women in Afghanistan who are, who are teaching nonviolence within uh, the Kandahar region. And so uh, that's a success story. Uh, sustainable agriculture, people creating sustainable uh, farms, people in areas where there were tribal conflicts. Um, they're using nonviolence and mediation to solve um, tribal conflicts that are centuries old. There are so many. Um, Pushan uh, in Korea. I visited Korea. Uh, Pushan in the north uh, became a city of peace in the Republic of Korea. And they have created a sister city in North Korea. And we hope that North Korea may have a city of peace, and it's over the border. There's, there's two um, uh, cities in South Korea and North Korea that are working together to create um, a new strategy for prosperity within those two communities, North Korea and South Korea. And that's how peace is made, and that's what International Cities of Peace does for them. It provides them an additional authority to work with other cities. I think that's great. And I have one last question for you, which is just that, how do we extrapolate these lessons from international cities of peace for people who are just dealing on an everyday basis with conflict resolution and peacemaking in their own communities? Well, uh, I think that learning about what a culture of peace is, in terms of uh, UNESCO has nine different tenets that create a culture of peace, free flow of information, education, human rights, things like that. Um, and understanding that nonviolence is a part of daily life, but we shouldn't stay in our, our bedrooms and we shouldn't, uh, and we shouldn't uh, stay on the internet. We need to really get out. We need to become active. We need to become involved. There's no bystanders in, in, in what we need to have done to prevent um, some of these existential threats that are coming toward us um, from being solved. So nobody on the sidelines. That was Fred Arment, founding director of International Cities of Peace. And you can learn more about ICP's global network 
at internationalcitiesofpeace.org. We'll have that link at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. You can also go to hear Sarah's complete interview with Fred Armet. Quick break here, then back with NYU professor James Seguru Rahutu with more on how people tend to regard international conflict. Stay tuned. It's Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. You can download almost every episode we've ever done from Apple Podcasts and other podcast platforms. I'm Paul Ingalls, the series producer, today with correspondent Sarah Holtz, who's looking at ways to recognize and reduce violence internationally in our world. When a conflict reaches an acute level of violence, it can be difficult to communicate the gravity of the situation to people outside that community's borders. James Seguru Wahutu is a professor in NYU's Peace and Conflict Studies program. He studies how journalists have historically covered genocides and other forms of mass violence in countries like Kenya and Rwanda. He's found that even deciding to use the word genocide is crucial to how people confront international conflicts. I do think that the designation of something as a genocide is an important designation. Right, because at the very least, it says, okay, we recognize that there are crimes here that are beyond the pale, right? Even within the confines of a conflict, they're beyond the pale. We recognize that. And for that in and of itself, it's very important. However, and this is where the struggle for me exists, right? However, there is a tendency within the continent, whenever there's a conflict, people go, is it genocide or is it not, right? Is it, is it as bad as Rwanda or is it not? Or is it worse than Rwanda? We're almost as though in a race to the bottom as to what is the worst form of thing that could be happening on the continent, right? The danger of the term genocide when it's used in the press is it almost desensitizes people. And people go, is the genocide now? Okay, let's move on. It's not that bad. But why must something be called a genocide for people to pay attention? Right? I spoke to a journalist once that said, look, whether we call something a genocide, whether we call it a crime against humanity, no one cares. People are dying. People are suffering. And the goal should be to ameliorate the human suffering, not whether a conflict is a genocide or not. Right? And that's the tension a lot of journalists are having to grapple with that I've had to grapple with as well, because what use is calling thing exogenocide if we're not going to actively work towards stopping it, right? So yes, naming something 
as a genocide, or labeling it as a possible genocide, or labeling the intent as genocidal is important. But I think that has to be balanced with what next? Right. And that's definitely something I want to talk to you about. Just to back up a bit, what are some of the main factors that led you to your research? Honestly, it was senior year of my undergrad at the University of Minnesota. I was writing a senior paper on how conflicts and especially post-intellectual violence conflicts were covered in the press. And I was largely interested in how African newspapers told this particular story to African audiences, right? So how do we tell the stories of post-intellectual violence in our own country? And I was talking to my then um, mentor and he said something along the lines of, well, you could sit here and complain about it or you could apply to graduate school and do something about it. So I ended up applying to graduate school and focused on African media and how they told the story of Darfur in the shadow of Rwanda. Right, and I also know that part of your work is around just bringing awareness to the fact that the experts on conflict and mass violence in the Global South are obviously writers from the Global South. And I wonder if you could say more about that. One, I also quickly realized that a lot of African news organizations and a lot of African governments, when it came to policy prescriptions, always sought out academics from the Global North. Right. There was always, uh, oh, we need an expert in news organizations. What are people saying in New York? What are people saying um, out in the West Coast? What are people saying in the UK that we could learn from? Right. And the first instance of doing something was, no, no, no. But what if there's a different narrative? Right. What if there are African experts out here that are doing phenomenal work, but nobody ever bothers to get in touch with them? So part of the doing something for me was, okay, I want to be part of that group, that group of African scholars that are doing certain work that I think of as important, and I want to insert myself in that conversation and see if I can contribute to that conversation. The next phase of doing things is a tad different, right? This particular type of doing things is saying, okay, I believe that African organizations are doing something meaningful. Right? I believe that African journalists are doing something meaningful. Can I be the person that tells that story of what they're doing? I remember I was at a conference once in Canada and we're sitting here, we're talking, you know, somebody goes, well, you know, no disrespect, but why are you focusing on African newspapers? Nobody reads African newspapers, right? You should be focusing on the New York Times and the Washington Post. I remember looking at him and thinking, one of the newspapers I'm studying is read in five African countries, right? But also, why would Africans care about what the New York Times is saying, right? So part of it, they are doing something to say, no, 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 these organizations are doing something important, something that should be studied, something that should be understood. Otherwise, we are silencing them in ways that is detrimental to this scholarly endeavor we want to pretend we're engaging in. Yeah, I can imagine that's a huge challenge. And I'm wondering if there are any other misconceptions when it comes to how we view the history of mass violence and genocide in a case like Rwanda, for example. Yeah, I think one of the things that is often kind of overblown or misunderstood is the role of the radio. And a lot of this came post the genocide in Rwanda, right, where 
the main narrative was, well, you know, the radio was the most important thing. The radio is the thing that led to the genocide, right? Especially this one, this one channel, RTLM. And often I have to tell people, well, for us to believe that, we would also have to believe that these Rwandans were so, were so gullible that they would listen to a message on the radio that told them to kill and that they would kill immediately, right? And was so obedient to this amorphous voice on the radio. So it would, it would, it would have us believe that. It would also have us believe that a vast majority of Rwandans had a radio, right? To, to kind of make sense of the scale of the killing. And I often have to tell people, mm, no, right? Those things, those arguments rest on very flawed understanding of Africans, but also radio, the place of radio. Yes, radios are cheap, absolutely. But if you're in a country such as Rwanda that was dirt poor at this particular point, you really realize not that many people had the radio, right? But even if they did, Africans are not sponges, right? Like you tell us to kill and we wake up and we take a machete and we kill. That's just nonsense. (laughs) What often was happening in a place like Rwanda was a few people had radios, but often it was a government official, right? Or somebody that was deemed as having a level of credibility in a village that told people and forced people to kill, right? And there was a level of lateral communication that had to happen where it would go, well, if this person that I trust is killing and this other person that I trust is killing and this other person that seems to have authority is forcing us to do this and is telling us to do this, then we will kill. Right, but it wasn't this radio or one radio station, especially when you think of the fact that Rwanda had three radio stations. And so, what was often happening was you were getting messages of hate that were being reinforced through radio, through newspapers, through so you were being bombarded by these messages, both audio and visual. And the reason I bring this up is because often nowadays, when people talk about a campaign, right? A peace campaign or a campaign against the X, they go, oh, let's use the radio, right? Because everybody has radios in Africa. They're the cheapest mode of communication, but also for some reason, and then unsaid bit is people believe what they, ha- what they hear in radio. And when the campaign is not effective, people are surprised. Well, people are surprised because you did not create an environment where for those that didn't have radios, they were still likely to see messages somewhere else and somewhere else. And some, so the message was not being reinforced, right? And you need that. So you need to kind of understand the media ecosystem in country X to figure out if radio will be even the most effective way to do something. Because it may sometimes not be, right? And you need to rethink that because not every country has the infrastructure to have radio that is that widespread. Slowly but surely, we're starting to rethink our assumptions about radio on the continent, especially as it pertains to conflict and how to best not just leverage it in in terms of post-conflict reconstruction, right, but also leverage it as a way to stop a level, the level of um, radicalization that we may be seeing And I feel like similarly, more and more people are talking about how we're living in this era of misinformation. And I'm wondering, how has that influenced the way that people consume news about mass violence and conflict? 
Uh, it's been interesting, right? Because I think with regard to Kenyan media, we had been dealing with online misinformation in one way, shape, or form prior to 2016, right? So the tactics that we sort of see employed here during the 2016 US presidential elections had already been employed in Kenya, had already been employed in Nigeria, and we had kind of seen these things and dealt with it. Now, we didn't know what was happening at the time, right? A few people knew and a few people kind of raised alarm, but writ large amongst the populace, we did not know what was happening at this time. Largely because in this particular period, a lot of folks, uh, a lot of people's understanding of online misinformation was still at the very early stages, right? What we instead saw was journalists who are generally, and TV anchors, right, who are generally higher up in the socioeconomic ladder. What we then saw is that they were, they were the ones likely to be duped by online misinformation. And then they would spread that, right, on the TV, in the news. And a lot of people would believe it because it's happening in the news, right? So it's almost this two-step process that shows up rather than as we've seen it in the U.S. online, on your social media platform affects people, right? It, for, for a lot of Kenyans, it was more of a two-step relationship. What we have now seen is after 2016 and people realizing that, oh, all of the things we saw in Kenya that are problematic were largely because Fa Facebook did this thing with Cambridge Analytica, then we need to rethink this structure, right? What are we actually doing? How much care should we need to bring when we're dealing with online information, right? And how much care should we need to bring when we're trying to figure out where is this information coming from? So in Kenya, uh, as in some other African countries as well, what we have thus seen is these um, fact-checking programs showing up, right, and creating a relationship with the press and creating a relationship with the regular Kenyans to tell them this is how you discern what is good information, what is misinformation, what is disinformation, right? This is how you need to think about these things and disambiguate the information you're consuming because the information ecosystem is being polluted. Now, does that stop misinformation from spreading? Not so much. But what we have seen is folks are likely to go, I saw this thing on Facebook, but I didn't see it on the radio or TV. Then maybe I do. I shouldn't trust it that much. Right? So misinformation may show up. Disinformation may show up online. But for the regular Kenyan, there is a sense of, let's wait and see if they talk about this on the radio. Right? Let's wait and see if they talk about this on the TV or if they publish it in the news. And so I think that's been sort of the shift from the 2012 Kenyan, uh, Kenyan presidential election to this particular moment. There's a healthy level of skepticism, both within the price, but also within just regular average Joe on the street. I'm speaking to Professor James Siguru Wahutu. And James, I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about the lessons you've learned from the African countries you've researched about how journalists deal with authoritarianism? During last year, but during the last um, administration, one of the things I often told students is American newspapers don't know how to deal with somebody that's an autocrat. They do not know how to deal with that. And this is the time when they should be looking at the Africans and going, what can we learn from the news organization in a Mozambique? 
right, in an Angola, where the leader is quite comfortable having a hostile relationship with the press, but the press still does its work every morning to hold the state to account, right? So I remember, you know, I wrote a few pieces about this and say, look, this is not new. All you have to do is to look at, look at your foreign correspondents in African countries, ask them how they're dealing with hostile regimes. So it was, it's always been fascinating for me, to me where everybody's quick to tell African news organizations, you need to be more like the New York Times. But when the New York Times doesn't know how to deal with a hostile regime, Nobody goes, maybe we need to figure out what the Africans are doing and how they have learned and what we can learn about what to expect, right? So when journalists were being targeted last year in the streets of multiple states in the US, everybody kept saying, well, these are rogue officers. And I'm like, no, 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 this is targeted. We know how this works out because we have seen it in African countries and they have learned, right? And you need to pay attention to what is happening in the global South, but that is never the case. I know you authored an article called Making African Suffering Legible, and I'm wondering what does that mean to you and how do you make African suffering legible to readers in neighboring African countries who are um, witnessing these conflicts in real time? So let's say there's an attack in Hoboken, New Jersey, right? And the journalist is here in New York and is trying to write a story to kind of get the New Yorkers to care about what is happening in Hoboken, New Jersey, right? So what what African journalists have done and what Kenyan journalists do is they say, we won't focus on trying to label what is happening in Hoboken as a war crime or we will not focus on that. We will tell targeted human stories about the experiences of those people. And then we will connect the lives of the folks in Hoboken to the lives of the folks in New York, right? So in the Kenya case, we will connect the lives of the people in Darfur or in Juba or in Tone, right? And connect that life to the life of that person in Nairobi, in Isiolo, in Kisumu, right? And we will create these tangible human connections emotionally. So that when somebody is seeing this story, they not only see themselves, but they see their daughter, their son, their sister, their brother, their nephew, their niece, right? They see these people in themselves, and maybe that will kind of drive the narrative differently and force us to seek solutions in very different ways, right? And I think one of the most effective ways this was done was during... The late 90s, early 2000, in the South Sudanese conflict, right? When you read those stories, there is this just narrativization of human suffering, right? And what that meant and what it looked like, right? But also there was this sense that, well, whatever is happening in South Sudan is going to be affecting us very quickly. And we need to figure out a way to ameliorate this situation, right? In the, in the 1994 genocide against the Tutsis, what we saw in that coverage in Kenya was this, you know, consistent narrative about those particular groups that were fighting in Rwanda and how those groups could be similar to groups living in Kenya, right? And tying that experience to this shared experience of colonization shared experience of 
um, the commodities markets just falling, right? And how this affected countries that were heavily reliant on agriculture, right? And those were the connections they were making. It was a story of pain. It was a story of families disintegrating. It was a story of neighbor versus neighbor killing each other. And the connection between what was happening there and what could have happened and what had sometimes been happening in the smaller scale in Kenya, right? The same was the way, I mean, this, in the same way the Nigerians covered Rwanda, right? It was conflict. It was, yeah, we Nigerians have gone through a civil war, but some, whatever is happening in Nigeria is different. And we need to care about it because we could end up like them very quickly, right? There was a level of introspection, but there was also a level of emotional labor being carried from, right? But that emotional labor being outsourced to sources, right? And actually letting the Rwandans speak for themselves and quoting them directly, letting them tell their story, letting the Dafuris tell their story, letting the South Sudanese to tell their story, right? So this contestation as to is what is happening in Darfur or somewhere else, is the genocide, is it not? Oftentimes it doesn't show up in a lot of African narrativization of these events. They just look, look, humans are suffering and we need to care about that. Now, all of these other institutions may be calling it a genocide, may be calling it something else, but as far as we're concerned, people are suffering and that is the story we need to tell. James Saguru Wahutu is an NYU professor studying media representations of mass violence in the global south. You can hear his complete interview with Sarah Holtz at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. Look for our July 2021 episode. We still have more here from this episode as Sarah talks with an advocate who works for an organization called Nonviolence News, getting the word out about how nonviolent action can really work. So stay tuned. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with Sarah Holtz, who continues her theme of talking to folks who have their sights set on elevating peacemaking efforts around the globe internationally. Learning about conflict resolution and social justice in far-flung places can also help us envision solutions in our own backyards. Rivera Sun gathers solution-based examples from around the world in her work at Nonviolence News. She also facilitates workshops in strategy and nonviolent action internationally. In her conversation with Sarah Holtz, Rivera first described her study guide for nonviolent action. 
So nonviolence is one of those big words that can encompass a lot of different practices, tools, and types of actions. But if we start just with nonviolent action, that's a toolbox that includes things like protests, which many of us know, uh, boycotts and strikes, occupations, blockades, shutdowns, walkouts, call-in six, um, demonstrations, rallies, marches, banners, uh, posters, uh, music, singing, the list goes on and on. There's actually over 300 different methods of nonviolent action. And, you know, the hallmark of them is that they're not causing harm to people, and most of the time not harm to uh, property either. So it's a it's a useful toolbox, but actually the word nonviolence goes on and it can also describe um, practices and policies that are rooted in approaches that don't cause harm to other people. And one of the ways I like to explain this is by actually talking about violence. Many of us know what physical violence is, uh, how that feels, what that looks like. But more and more of us are starting to pick up on the fact that there's other kinds of violences. There's systemic or structural violence, like the violence of slavery, or the violence of discriminatory policies, or the violence of um, the war machine, for example. So if you have systemic or structural violences, it stands to reason that you could also have systemic or structural nonviolence. And these are alternatives. So instead of having a punitive justice system where people get sent to prison for long prison sentences, we can have restorative justice. And this has been actually really helpful for intervening in things like the school to prison pipeline or disproportionate minority impacts in the justice system. And we're seeing many communities across uh, the U.S. and beyond start to implement restorative justice practices, uh, particularly in schools, but increasingly with juvenile justice programs and even with uh, certain types of adult offenses. So that's just one of the many examples of nonviolent uh, systems and structures that can be implemented that can replace those kinds of systemic and structural violences that have become all too familiar and all too norm in our society. Right. And how did you start writing and thinking about nonviolence and social change in the first place? I uh, grew up uh, with a father who was an anti-Vietnam War activist, uh, but I didn't actually become an activist till I was much older in life when the Occupy movement happened right across the street from where I lived. It was um, hard to ignore. Our local encampment in California where I was, uh, was loud and very visible, and I had to come out of my house and say, what's going on? Uh, so that got me started in activism, and several years later, I was writing my novel, The Dandelion Insurrection, and I realized I had gotten my characters in a mess that I didn't know how to get them out of, so I actually Googled how to bring down dictators nonviolently, and got four million hits back, and started reading, and realized that there's an entire field, science, art, movement, everything you can think of around nonviolent action. Uh, and it's the kind of tools that any of us can pick up anywhere, anyone. Definitely. And you mentioned the Occupy movement just now. And I'm wondering if there are any lessons that you learned from Occupy that you've been able to apply to other movements for nonviolence. 
Sure. I, I think movements are always learning and growing. They're uh, wildly experimental in their nature, and Occupy was certainly a great example of that. Um, I think one of the things, not just Occupy, but actually the global field of nonviolent action is learning and remembering is that we can't just rely on mass demonstrations and mass protests. That actually, if we want our movements to be successful, we need to pair those types of visible large demonstrations with uh, acts of non-cooperation, things like boycotts and shutdowns and walkouts, or acts of nonviolent intervention, like blockades and um, shutdowns and um, strikes, civil disobedience. And the reason we need to do this is because we need to disrupt the churning of the injustice as usual. We need to get in the way of that injustice. And if we don't disrupt the daily operations of how our society is participant in the wrongdoing, then it's easy for those power holders to simply just, you know, shut themselves up in their ivory towers and ignore the social movement. So by pairing tactics, uh, we not only become more effective and impactful, but we also start to diversify our approaches. So if, for example, as happens around the world, police actually, or the government shuts down the right to, pro to assemble, the right to have demonstrations or to protest, then our movement isn't left hung out to dry. We already can call upon our people to move into a boycott campaign, for example, or a general strike or an industry-wide strike. Um, it gives us a versatility. It gives us a resilience in our movement. I think that's one of the the most important lessons for activists right now, especially since in the United States, we have historically been used to having the right to protest. And that has been increasingly uh, rolled back. Uh, of course, people of color and low-income groups, uh, people who have less privilege in the society, have been warning uh, U.S. activists at large about this for years. And we're really seeing that. We certainly saw it with the George Floyd protests, and we're seeing it um, with the climate protests. We've seen it around uh, indigenous-led anti-pipeline protests, that the, the power holders are trying to restrict those rights. They're trying to pass 81 bills across the country restricting our right to protest. In my opinion, that is a, a violation of our First Amendment rights, but we're going to have to duke it out in court, <laughs> apparently. But we, we need to, as activists, be aware that for many reasons, simply standing up and shouting may not be effective and it may be increasingly risky. And so we need to open up that toolbox and pull out other tools so that we can be prepared for the times that we're in. We're speaking with Rivera Sun, who leads workshops on nonviolent strategy. And Rivera, I'm wondering if um, you could share some of the strategies that you teach in your workshops. Mm, yeah, I have done trainings across the country and internationally as well. And what I specifically uh, focus on a lot is strategy for nonviolent movements. And so we'll be looking at some of the things that we've been talking about today, but also what are design elements for a successful campaign, learning from the past and applying for the, to the present. 
what who is who's going to be the participants in our movement what types of action are they going to do how long is our campaign going to last what do we do when we need to shift tactics how is our communications going to be handled what is our message our demand our slogans um you know how do we mitigate some of the risks that our movement might be facing uh how do we build participation in our movement uh with groups of people who may be odd bedfellows that we might not be used to working with. So these are all uh, aspects to being strategic about the work that we're doing and successful movements throughout history have used this approach. They've been skillful, they've been wise, they've been thoughtful about what they're doing. Uh, they have impact directly impacted the situation with direct action, with acts of non-cooperation and intervention. And one of my goals in these movements is to make sure that everyone in our populace has these tools. I am a firm believer that strategy is wiser when we do it together. It shouldn't be the purview of just a handful of really smart people. That when our whole movement knows how to plan, it starts to behave strategically. This is a quote from uh, one of the Otpor activists in Serbia who overthrew the dictator Milosevic in 2000. So when everyone knows how to plan, you start to see strategic behavior. And personally, I would love to see that in uh, a broad sector of the U.S. populace, particularly with our social justice movements, because I, I think we're up against so many challenges that we can't rely on one or two movements to do all the strategizing for all that needs to be done. We need people to know how to use these tools. They come from a very long lineage around the world. Um, we sometimes get into a bad habit of thinking of nonviolence as something that only certain types of peace activists use. But actually, nonviolence has, is as old as the hills. The first recorded strike happened in 1170 BC in Egypt when tomb workers who were building a, a tomb for the pharaoh went on strike because the pharaoh hadn't paid them. And we see that people of almost every country around the world, of every race, ethnicity, nationality, every age, every gender, every sexual orientation, every political persuasion for that matter, have picked up these tools and, and used them for their, their goals. So I really like to remind us that we borrow these tools from generations of humanity. We learn them from people who have resisted and struggled against the oppressions and injustices that they faced. And when we ignore them, it's a shame. It's a crying shame that we can't see that thousands of years of history have delivered these tools to us at this moment of need that is very great in our society. Yes. And, you know, it's interesting because I perused your newsletter for a while um, from Nonviolence News. And rather than get that kind of hopeless feeling that I often get listening to the news on the radio or watching TV, your roundups filled me with a sense of hope. And I'm wondering if that in itself is a strategy. Yeah, absolutely. So Nonviolence News is a... Um a new service that I run that collects 30 to 50 stories of nonviolence in action each week. And people can always run through or scroll through the weekly roundups at nonviolencenews.org. But we do try to look for 
all these different kinds of nonviolence that we've been describing so far in the show, but then also, as you mentioned, ways of practicing nonviolence towards ourself. So rather than just making social change with nonviolence or having uh, structural or systemic nonviolence or um, interpersonal nonviolence, like nonviolent communication, we also are looking for ways that we respect ourselves, that we find ways to rest when we need rest, to eat healthy food, to meditate, to take a break when we need to, to stop that cycle in our own minds where we're constantly uh, demeaning ourselves or putting ourselves down. The, the list of this goes on, you know, there's many ways that we practice violence towards ourselves, some, you know, fairly small and others very large, including, um, you know, a, a cutting or um, some abuses or um, addictions can also be forms of violence towards ourselves. So there's a lot of practices that people have developed for shifting those patterns. And they often go by other other names. You know, you may be finding mindfulness as a stress reduction tactic. You may be finding, um, you know, a, a group, a community that's trying to cook healthier together. So nonviolence often masquerades. <laughs> it often uh, very graciously goes by another name, by another um, way of describing it. But if you, if you start to look deeply, you can start to see that it is all around us and increasingly so in our societies. Yeah. And the other cool thing about um, nonviolence news is that you have so many great international examples of nonviolence. Absolutely. One of the reasons I cover so many international stu- uh, stories in nonviolence news is because in the U.S., we tend to get stuck in our own media bubble. We tend to pay attention when we do pay attention to our own issues and our own problems and our own stories and our own solutions. But when we look beyond our borders and we listen and we learn from people who are rising up against injustice, we are forced to reconsider some of our very basics, basic assumptions, uh, because people are thinking about these issues in very different ways. Iceland, for example, just uh, trial run, test run, a four-day work week, right, which is almost unfathomable in U.S. society where so many of us are overworked and underpaid. Or in France, um, during, this is a great pandemic story, actually, uh, they had an abandoned McDonald's in a certain neighborhood, and they actually broke into the McDonald's, they, you know, they used bolt cutters and opened up the doors, and they converted it into a fast, quote unquote, food bank where they would uh, collect the foods and they would actually distribute it right out that little sliding window that you usually get your your hamburger and your fries out of. And one of the things that happened with this is that the government of France actually ended up buying the McDonald's and giving it back to the community to stop the police from evicting the food bank because they had done such amazing work of taking care of people all throughout the the crisis. I love that story. And it makes me think about how over the past year during the pandemic, communities have really leaned into the idea of mutual aid. And I'm wondering what you can tell us about the history of mutual aid in nonviolent movements. Mm, 
Yeah, mutual aid is a great example um, of learning from the past. Uh, as your listeners may know, mutual aid is comes from, comes to us from the labor movement, and it basically is people helping people, but taking out the the framework of have and have not, which is typically embedded in charitable giving or charity work, uh, but rather to see one another as equal human beings and to uh, help one another from a sense of solidarity. In the labor movement, uh, mutual aid was dramatic and large and involved, you know, huge amounts of food and uh, fundraising to support striking workers all across the country and indeed across countries around the world. Uh, we also saw it in things like when the Lowell textile workers went on strike, uh, this, these mothers mostly um, sent their children to live with strangers in the mutual aid network in Vermont so they would be safe, they would be fed, they would be warm and sheltered, even if the strike breakers uh, managed to get the mothers evicted from the houses that they lived in, for example, or you know, they didn't have the money to feed the children. That kind of solidarity is breathtaking and awe-inspiring. And we have seen a resurgence of that spirit in the responses to COVID, mutual aid networks sprung up across the country. There's more than 400 of them now. So that is one of the things you see over and over again is that uh, people are incredibly creative. And when we know the stories of our past, it actually fuels our creativity in the present. We can borrow tools from those who came before, but we can also invent new tools for our times. We're speaking to nonviolent activist Rivera Sun. And Rivera, I first encountered your work in an article you wrote about the Nonviolent Cities Project. And I wonder if you could share a little bit about that organization. Yes, uh, Pache Ibene, which is a 30 year old nonviolence organization, uh, started a, a program called the Nonviolent Cities Project. And the bold idea with this was to say, to look around at our city or our community or town and say, where are these forms of structural and systemic violence? How does violence happen in our community? And how is one form of violence often responded to with another form of violence? And what can we as citizens do to start to shift that equation and break that cycle? So the, the Nonviolent Cities Project is being organized uh, in uh, over 50 cities across the U.S. Uh, it was launched in Carbondale, Illinois, which was actually the, the model nonviolent city. And we learned about the idea from them. They had their local library host a, a series of gatherings for different civic groups and individuals in which they put forward this vision that we could root our practices as a community in nonviolent alternatives. You know, many of these groups are are small groups of really amazing, heartful individuals doing what they can, where they can, as they can. Um, but they're all carrying the the kind of broad vision of what this might look like. And honestly, they're learning a lot from 
a lot of our social justice movements. And we often don't think of something like the call to defund police and fund um, street teams that are unarmed and still disrupt and interrupt and deescalate violence as a nonviolent uh, call to action, but it is. And so in the nonviolent cities, they're uh, picking up on ideas such as that and helping to bring them to their city or to support the campaigns that are pre-existing. They're looking at um, different forms of community safety rooted in nonviolence. So when there's a protest, can a peace team be there instead of the police, as was just done in Minneapolis during a local street festival? Um, can we create a accompaniment service for vulnerable community members when they don't feel safe riding the subway, that they can just call someone and have someone ride along with them? Uh, a nonviolent city would also um, teach nonviolence specifically and directly and overtly to its citizenry. So that might look like the nonviolent school pro schools project, which was started in Rhode Island at a uh, public elementary school, uh, teaching practices of nonviolence as a form of alternative conflict navigation. This school uh, actually front loads a week of nonviolence training and conflict resolution with the entire school. And when teachers ask, but what about your standard curriculum? What if you lose time? Uh, they say, we make up that time later on because we don't have to spend so much time on discipline in our classroom. And it is inspiring to see the stories framed in this way. We're not just reading reports of how bad everything is getting. We're also reading at the same time about the people who are doing something about it and the solutions that they're proposing. And there is something very empowering about that, very grounding, very centering. And there's a lot in there that we can learn from. We're still paying attention. We're not putting our heads in the sand, but we're paying attention to the news in such a way that we learn from and with our other fellow human beings who are standing up for profound change and proposing some of the best and brightest ideas on the planet. That was Rivera Sun, an advocate for nonviolent action. And you can find her weekly international roundups at nonviolencenews.org. We'll have that link and other resources too at our website, peacetalksradio.com, also including the entire Sarah Holtz interview with Rivera Sun. So head to peacetalksradio.com and look for our July 2021 episode. Peacetalksradio.com is also where you can go to hear more from all of our guests today or to hear any of the programs in our series dating back to 2002. We have complete interviews with guests. We have photos. We have links to other resources on our topics, partial transcripts you can share, and so much more. Plus, there's a donate button if you believe in our mission to preserve some of the media landscape for talk about peace and nonviolent conflict resolution strategies. You can help us continue to achieve that goal with that donate button at peacetalksradio.com. Nola Daves Moses is our executive director. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. For Sarah Holtz, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks so much for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Mm -hmm.